kids today don't respect the law. They don't even respect themselves. All they want to do is sit around and smoke pot, play ukuleles, and let the rest of the world take care of them. Welcome to Barracuda Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Fox. The groundbreaking TV show Mad Men is now in its final season. For seven seasons, the show has immersed its viewers in the treacherous world of New York ad executives. The show centers around the iconic Don Draper, whose genuine talents and charisma are constantly being undermined by his self-destructive behavior. Mad Men's unhurried storylines and morally feeble characters have broadened the possibilities for a basic cable drama. Its plotlines are rarely wrapped up at the end of a single episode. Some plots last several seasons long, giving the show the pace of a novel rather than that of a TV series. Another one of Mad Men's essential elements is its ambitious visual style. One part is the show's meticulously recreated post-war fashion and decor, complete with cigarette smoke so thick you think you can smell it coming out of your TV. The other part is Mad Men's cinematic photography. It lends the show a gravitas normally reserved for feature films. It also bolsters the show's vintage elegance in a way that makes this journey into another time seem even more authentic. As the ads for Mad Men's final season state, this is the end of an era. In honor of the show's final days, we're going to talk to Chris Manley. Manley directed several pivotal Mad Men episodes and was the cinematographer for almost the entire run of the series. We'll hear about the challenging career choices that brought him to work on the show. And we'll also discuss the ideas behind big and small choices that were made while directing and shooting Mad Men. Chris Manley, welcome to Barracuda Radio. Thanks for having me. So you are the director of photography of Mad Men. You've been the cinematographer on Mad Men for everything except for the first season, correct? That's correct. And how did you wind up coming to be the director of photography for that show? Oh, boy. That's a long story. Well, I kind of started in indie movies and then eventually got into television. I'd been doing five or six years of television and it's a brutal schedule and I was kind of getting really burned out physically and artistically. And I wasn't seeing my kids or my son rather because my daughter was just about to be born. And and so basically I had gotten to the point where I was on every network's approved list and I could kind of work for any network and it was staffing season i think it was 2007 and i decided to take a break i wanted to take a break break from television i wanted to try to do more movies and commercials and spend more time with my family and just have more downtime than working you know 80 hours a week for 10 months a year and a lot of my crew guys thought i was nuts they said don't you know there's a strike coming and i said strike schmike but it did, in fact, come, the writer's strike that year. And, you know, after a few months, nobody was working. So I had, my wife and I had kind of a state of the financial union. And, uh, you know, we agreed that I would take whatever job came next. It didn't matter what it was. And the first offer that came was the show called Mad Men, which was really lucky. And part of the reason 
I was offered the show was because the um, cinematographer they wanted to do the show was committed on a different TV show, and he recommended me. Now, had I taken any of those other offers the previous year, uh, I wouldn't have been available. So by basically taking a, a break, trying to ch recharge my batteries artistically and step back for a moment, the opportunity of a lifetime came along. Right. So for people that aren't in show business or around show business, working on movies or on a TV show, it's not like a nine to five lifetime job where you work at the same place. You're on a bunch of different jobs, a bunch of different shows throughout the year, and you're always looking for the next job. So there is this idea that you have to be available for it when the opportunity comes up or you just don't get the opportunity. Right. I think that for freelancers, maybe not just the film business, but freelancers in general, the idea of ever saying no to anything is terrifying right. because there's no job security. Most people take whatever job they're offered if they're insecure about employment or money. And I was that way many, many times over my career. But what I've found and what I've learned several times now, I think at three key moments in my career, was that when I turn down a job, even if I need the money, for whatever the reason, whether I don't like the script or I don't think it will be beneficial in any way other than monetarily, a better opportunity always comes along. And I've had to learn, relearn that lesson several times. But, you know, when I got the Mad Men job, that was the most recent version of that. By saying no to a lot of things that I didn't want to do, uh, something that I really wanted to do, I was available for. Right. So. so the lesson that you take away from that is essentially the opposite of the old adage that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, that you should take the the opportunity that's directly available to you because it's there. But the lesson that you learn is actually the opposite of that, right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's difficult. Someone like myself coming out of grad school, you basically try to shoot everything you possibly can and never say no to anything. You know, if you want to progress, you have to keep moving the line. You have to figure out where the line is of what you'll do and what you won't do. Luckily, in my case, it mostly moved forward, but it can move back and forth depending on your situation. But you need to aim for higher things and start turning down things that you may have done in the past. Otherwise, you're just kind of treading water. Right. So give me an example of where the line was, say, when you first got out of graduate school versus <laughs> now. Um, well, I did a, a, a TV movie for a company that was trying to produce a lot of television movies non-union. And I was kind of in a position to be the guy to shoot all of them. Uh, and they were really hard and they were six days a week and they didn't pay very well. And, you know, at a certain point I stopped working for them. You know, it was kind of crazy because I, it would have been like two years of solid guaranteed work. But right after I did, then they started having a lot of trouble with the unions. And I basically sidestepped a whole horrible confrontation. And when I I stopped working for them, I got another opportunity that was much better right away. So that was an early version of the same kind of thing by saying, I don't really want to do this anymore. I want to look for something more gratifying, something better came along. Often people will say, well, you know, hey, just be glad you have a job. And in a lot of ways, that's terrible advice. <laughs> you should be grateful for the small things in your life and you should be grateful for opportunities that you have and you have a career and you have, you're able to put food on the table and a roof over your head. But just being grateful that you have a job and that's it, that's, that's actually terrible advice. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that anyone who goes into any kind of artistic field is taking on inherent risk to begin with. So then if you're in that artistic field and you're taking only the safe jobs all the time, then it's kind of antithetical to the reason you got in. You know, you, you decided not to sell insurance or whatever options you would have had as a college graduate. Why would you suddenly start thinking that way if you've already made a choice to do something as crazy as try to make a living in the film business? And just to give people, again, that aren't in the film business or in the entertainment business a little background, when you shoot a film or a TV show, any production, it's murder. I mean, it's a lot of hard work. Tell me a little bit about the hours that you would put in as a DP. Small budget, large budget, the hours are pretty grueling, correct? They are. They're horrible. And they're, they're worse non-union when I started. And I don't know how the film business and television got so warped, but it seems that the goal nowadays is to finish in 12 hours and a 12-hour day of shooting is considered a short day there are a few exceptions i know clint eastwood doesn't work that way on his movies but those exceptions are few and far between and i know that it wasn't always this way alfred hitchcock went to the studio and punched a clock and worked like nine to six and i don't know how or when it got kind of this distorted but 60 hours of work is a really short, light, easy week. You know, I've been on shows where I put in 75, 80 hours a week. And, you know, because the cinematographer is in a position of responsibility and in many ways a position of management, there's a lot of homework involved as well. So there's a lot of off-the-clock work that happens. So, yeah, it's, it's not something that you can sustain 50 hours a week, year in, year out. And generally it happens in bursts, followed by months of unemployment. So it's kind of, it's hard to kind of have a work-life balance in this business. It's pretty much all or nothing. Yeah. So when people hear you say, oh, I didn't work for three months or I had three months off, mm -hmm. that's because you had a super compressed, highly dense nine months of that year. Right. And you got the three months off. So if you do all the math on it for how many hours you put in per week, averaged over the year, it's, I can almost guarantee it's more than 40 hours a week. I oh, think. yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot more. So I've never done that math. I think I would be afraid yeah. <laughs> to find the answer. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that math. You won't like the number that you come up with. Right. Although I did do the math when I read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book. In the, oh, the 10,000 hours? The 10,000 hours. I went back and added up You know, every hour I'd spent on set over the last 15 years. I'm like, oh, I've, I passed 10,000 hours <laughs> ages ago. What am I worried about? <laughs> Walk me through the thought process now. You say that years ago you learned this lesson that it's good to turn down bad jobs or jobs that aren't moving forward to take that risk, but you're still trying to put that lesson into place. Mm -hmm. What's the struggle now? Is it just still the same struggle of believing that you can turn down work, getting over the fear of not taking a job that's available to you? Does it make any more sense now? I think so. I mean, I think that Mad Men has certainly changed a lot for me. Uh, part of it is having read 70 plus scripts that were all great that has kind of really warped my perception of what good material looks like and you could say for the better but you know when i read anything else it's always i'm always comparing it to mad men which is an unfair comparison so it's made me far more critical of other types of material but getting back to your question i think mad men for me was kind of a charmed experience and the whole time we were doing it, I, I mean, I had the overwhelming feeling that I am so fortunate to be working on a show that I believe in, that I think is this good, that is so well regarded, 
And this is this happens once in a career. And someday, 10 or 20 years from now, if I get another one like this, that'll be gravy. That'll be great. But in general, this is like, this doesn't happen very often. So I'd like to say that having done Mad Men, it kind of redrew the line at a really high place. But if I only worked on shows that I thought were as good as Mad Men, well, I might never work again. So <laughs> I don't know if I answer your question or not, but... Sort of. Um, I was just wondering about trying to talk yourself into passing on an available job that maybe you don't think is so great. Is that, I guess I'm saying, is that any easier now than it used to be? I think so. I think so. I mean, when I turned something down in the past, it was always a huge question mark. What would come along? Would it be better? How long can I pay my bills before I have to take something? Now I kind of feel like Mad Men has given me a lot more opportunities. So I can wait for something that I believe in, like, you know, Masters of Sex, which I'm doing now. And when the opportunity came up for you to shoot Mad Men, had you seen the first season? Were you a fan of the show already? <laughs> okay, well, now I am telling a secret, which is fine. Once the show had kind of been up and going for a while, when they brought in new people, producers and creators really wanted people who knew and loved the show and were fans of the show, and that was very important to them. So, you know, my agent got the call for me for Mad Men and they said, is he a fan of the show? And she said, of course he is. <laughs> and then she called me and said, are you a fan of the show? I'm like, oh, I haven't seen it. <laughs> she said, well, you better find a way to see it. You have an interview tomorrow. So I was trying to figure out how can I see the show, you know? And it was right around the time that iTunes started putting television up. And the first two episodes of Mad Men were, were on iTunes and I watched them and I was blown away. So then I interviewed with one of the producers and the interview went well. And then he gave me the DVDs for the entire first season and said, here, watch these. You have a meeting with Matthew Weiner at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. So I basically went home and binged watched the entire first season and was just utterly blown away. So, you know, when I went into that meeting with Matthew, it was kind of like, I couldn't stop raving about how much I loved his show. <laughs> I felt like it was the first time that I didn't have to at least a little bit exaggerate my enthusiasm for the material. It was all genuine. I was just like gushing and I probably made a fool of myself, but as it turns out, he loves flattery. So <laughs> well, who does I got the job. <laughs> Well, it's good that you could at least be genuine about yeah. it. You didn't feel like you had to go in there and be right. calculating, right. you know, I got to play this like I'm too cool for school. You just right. went in and were kind of bananas about it. I was. I was totally, I was totally sold. Tell us about what the director of photography or cinematographer is responsible for on the show. So when somebody's watching a show, what are they seeing that is your responsibility? It varies, but generally a cinematographer or director of photography helps the director with the blocking of the actors. And Which is where the actors stand and are moving around in, on the set in relation to the camera. Exactly. Where they go in the room or the space, where and when they go, how they move and how shots develop and how their movements affects the shots that we're considering. Um, and then discusses with the director what the shots should be, how the camera should move, if it should move, what shots will we need to cover the action of the scene. That's like the collaborative part with the director and with the actors. And every director is different. Some directors don't know how to do this at all. And the cinematographer has to do everything. Other directors are highly visual and highly, you know, adept at pre-visualizing scenes and being able to cut them in their head. Mm -hmm. You know, and some directors are 
famous micromanagers and they decide everything. Now, do you have a preference? Obviously not the micromanager person, but right. do you have a preference or is that just, that's part of the job if it works one way or the other? Uh, my preference is when it's 50-50, mm-hmm. when the director has ideas, but then I'll have ideas and we kind of inspire each other and bounce ideas off each other and, and where the two minds are greater than any individual. So that's the most fun when you inspire each other and collaborate on a deep level. So that's what a cinematographer does with a director and what the, what they do that is kind of more of their purview that the directors deal to a far less extent is lighting and contrast control, color control, filtration, things with the camera, uh, lensing, choosing focal lengths, things like that. Uh, now, the photographic, the more highly specific photographic elements of shooting a scene. So. Right. So when you talk about lensing, give me an example of a different focal length that you would choose under different circumstances. Okay. For instance, on Mad Men, people praise the show for looking like an old movie, and that's not an accident. A lot of modern television is shot with multiple cameras. And, you know, because the cameras are really competing for space on the set, it forces them to be further away on more telephoto lenses. So it kind of compresses the space. One thing we tried to do on Mad Men was use medium lenses and wider lenses so that you feel more of the environment that the characters are existing in. The difficulty of that is that it often only makes room for one camera, at the most two cameras. And so it kind of forces you to shoot in a way that's more time consuming, which is why it feels more like a movie and why you have kind of the, you, you feel the surroundings and the set and the atmosphere. And, the, and in that way, you get a, a stronger sense of the period as well, because you see more of those period details in the frame. When you're talking about vintage movies or old movies, cameras in the era of Mad Men, say the early 60s, film cameras would be considered gigantic by today's standards. Right. When sound came into movies, originally the cameras were in booths because they made so much noise and they had to separate the camera noise from the microphones. So they would be basically these sweat boxes that would be 130 degrees inside. And then pretty quickly they figured out that they could build a box, which was called a blimp, around the camera itself so that the the noise of the camera wouldn't be transmitted to the microphones. You know, in the early Mitchells that were blimped, honestly, I'm I'm not a big film historian, but early on I know it took four people to carry this thing. You know, it was probably between 100 and 200 pounds. And of course, as the technology developed, it got lighter and lighter over the years. But I mean, the important thing is that on Mad Men, the, the original concept, and a concept that we more or less sustained throughout the entire series, was that we wouldn't move the camera in a way that couldn't have been done in the time period we were depicting. Oh, interesting. For instance, Steadicam is a great tool that came about in the 70s for filmmaking, but we almost never used it. So Steadicam is a camera that's kind of kept in balance with gyroscopes and a person wears it and walks around the set. So when you see a shot where something's very fluid and moving in and out of people, that's typically a Steadicam. Yes, yes. Because in the past you would have to do it handheld and then it would look shaky and then it it would be more obtrusive. And uh, the Steadicam kind of freed the camera to move like a person but still keep the image steady. I mean, I think the first feature film to use it was Bound for Glory in 1976. It might have been, yeah, 1976. And then Rocky kind of made it much more well-known. Oh, right. 
1977. So that's a tool, like that's a modern filmmaking tool that we did we just didn't use. A lot of the directors would come in and we'd we'd be doing a walk and talk, for example, through the office. And it's like, wow, this is really a steady cam shot because that's what filmmakers do nowadays in those types of scenes. And then we have to rethink it. We have to go back and think, okay, if we have to do it on dollies, this heavy equipment to move the camera, how do we do it? And what happens is it ends up creating a visual style that feels more like the 19 early 1960s than it, a modern tv show was that a big adjustment for a lot of directors that came in or did they pick up on the changes pretty quickly i think they got it pretty quickly the interesting thing is that creatively there are many types of scenes that you do that just call for steadicam and it's like a go-to tool and a director would be like well this is really a steadicam scene and it's like yes we don't do that. So now they have to figure out how to create the same scene without the tool that they have relied on for so long. So it kind of forces you to be more creative, which is kind of interesting because, um, you know, you have to figure out a different way to do things. The rules of Mad Men were very specific, very kind of, kind of limiting in certain ways. And it kind of reminds me of that dogma movement with that film, The Celebration and you know, these Danish filmmakers, uh, Thomas Vinterberg, I think, made these rules like, we're going to make films and we're only, you know, going to do it this way. And here are the rules. And they're, they're very limiting, yes, but maybe something interesting artistically will come out of having these self-imposed limitations. Right. You have to find creative solutions to overcome the boundaries. Yes. And I think that, you know, it's an interesting way to work. And I think that it gave our show, you know, a unified style. One thing that you said was that the camera nowadays is competing more for space on the set than it did, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Why is that? The pace of production is so fast. You're usually shooting eight pages of material per day. Now, for someone who's not in the business, a day's work is usually measured in pages. So if a feature film is 120 pages and you have a 100-day schedule, you're averaging a little over a page a day. And in television, if you have a 60-page script and you're shooting in eight days, you're almost up to eight pages a day. Uh, so you're shooting eight times faster for a rough sketch, eight times faster, seven times faster than a 100-day feature film. So part of it is is speed and, and uh, the need to get a variety of coverage very quickly. And a lot of the TV shows that I worked on in the past before Mad Men, anytime any character spoke, you needed a close-up of that person speaking. Mm -hmm. And in feature filmmaking, this is kind of a no-no because what it does is it diminishes the power of every other close-up because it's watering it down. If you have a close-up of in every scene, you're not saying this is important. You're saying everything is equally important. So then the viewer doesn't feel that something is extraordinarily important. And I think that in television, the overuse of close-ups is kind of a hangover from the fact that television sets used to be very small and that people are watching a small square in their living room 10 or 12 or 15 feet away. And in order to tell the story, you had to use close-ups. Nowadays, I mean, over the past, I don't know how many, 20 plus years or whatever, 
theaters have gotten smaller as multiplexes took over from the movie palaces and televisions just get larger and larger. So your perspective of watching whatever form of entertainment is almost the same now. It's like if you have a 60-inch television in your living room and you're sitting eight feet away, that's a very similar experience to being in a theater one-third the distance from the screen. So it's very similar. And I think that you know, I think a lot of the good shows that are on television now understand that and are taking kind of more of a movie sense of scale. And part of that idea that informed Mad Men was also from, you know, movies of the period of the 60s. Our closest shot generally was what they call an MCU, which is like shoulders up and you see the whole head with a little bit of headroom on the frame above a person's head. If we went inside their hairline, which they call a hair, a haircut, mm-hmm. you know, where you're framed from like their chin to the top of their forehead, that was really rare. And so when we did that, we were saying, this is really important. You need to pay attention to this, whatever this character is feeling emotionally. And I think we did that less than once per episode. Can you think of an example to give the listeners of a time when you chose that shot? (laughs) Uh, Over 70 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I do remember a shot from an episode I directed in in the beginning of season seven. Don Draper has been kicked out of his own agency and he basically comes back to work. Roger tells him to come back, but Roger doesn't tell anybody. So nobody knows why he's there and they keep him waiting in the creative lounge all day long and then they finally agree to meet with him in the conference room they say yes you can come back to work but they give him all these impossible demands that you think don draper is never gonna agree to this and the final shot is like a push-in into his face which ends in a fairly tight close-up and he says okay he agrees there are others I can't think of offhand. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that you brought that scene in that episode up because there was there was another great scene in that episode that I was going to ask you about where when Don first comes in, they don't really have anywhere to put him and he winds up sitting in the break room. And watching it, he had this look like a parent coming to their child's elementary school for parent-teacher night where he's this adult sitting in a little kid's chair. So it almost looked as though someone had scaled down the set by an eighth or a quarter to make him look bigger. But I don't think that you guys did that. Yeah. Tell no, no, that. we didn't. But I'm glad that you felt that way. That was that was certainly, he certainly didn't feel like he belonged there. And particularly because, you know, it's later in the 60s now and the young people are changing so much and they're so much more casually dressed and casual about, you know, how they behave at work. And in that space, we generally see Peggy and Ginsburg and Stan and... I'm blanking now on some of the other characters, but that space is usually occupied by more junior creative people that are much younger and much more casual. So when you see Don Draper in his suit at his age, sitting at that table, it's uh, it's arresting. It looks wrong. So thank you for noticing. Yeah, well, he, he <laughs> visually he seemed out of place, but photographically he looked like he was too big for the room too. He just looked like a giant. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that scene a little bit just to to get an idea of your work process. So that scene is written into a script. You are directing that episode and you're going through it. What's the discussion that you have to arrive at 
how to shoot that scene, for example. As the director, it's much different. And the transition for me from uh, cinematography to directing was was interesting. You know, the good news is that I knew the show really well. I knew the style of the show really well. I have a strong command of the, the visuals of the show. I mean, the other advantage I have is that I loved the show and I loved Matthew Weiner's vision for the show. And I wanted to basically do what he wanted to do basically trying to get into his head and figure out what would he want to see in this film or in this scene or whatever, because I, you know, my taste and his were, were so similar in so many ways that it worked really well for me. You see a scene on paper, you see uh-huh. a, a scene on paper in the script, and then how do you start thinking about where that scene's going to wind up or how you're going to shoot that scene? Well, if you're lucky enough, you, you go to the set or the location ahead of time, and that helps you pre-visualize Uh, how you want to approach the scene but it's like a lot of other things you make the best plan you possibly can and then on the day you have to be prepared to throw it all out because there's lots of wild cards that happen in production Um, such as oh you know losing a location whether not having a prop that works the way you thought it would there's all kinds of wild cards animals children (laughs) (laughs) effects Luckily, Mad Men doesn't have a whole lot of like blood or stunts or windows breaking, things like that. But the biggest, I mean, one of the biggest wild cards are the actors. You know, you can read the scene, you can pre-visualize it a certain way. But then when you're standing in the room with the actors saying the words and doing the action, sometimes your plan was completely wrong for what they're doing. So you have to be open to responding to the emotion of the scene that they're bringing the needs of what they need to do, whether they feel like, you know, they need to be standing or seated or when they should cross the room, things like that. So I haven't done it, but theoretically you could storyboard, you know, an entire show and it will never look like your storyboards. Something always changes. Right. So now you as a, let's say this is the first episode that you're directing for Mad Men, you get yourself into a situation where what you had visualized isn't quite working out. What's the inner monologue in your head? Are you are you confident saying that, or is there a battle where you say, "I should just pretend that I know what I'm doing and just stick with it"? How do you handle that? Partly for me, it, you know, because I'm a cinematographer, I think I pre-visualize the shots pretty well. I I do shot lists, and most directors kind of do shot lists. I generally tend to shot list, and then when I see the scene with the actors, I'll revise the shot list, and I try to leave myself open to inspirational moments on the day, whatever happy accident might occur that might create a more interesting shot or a more interesting way of doing a scene than than you preconceived. I think it's a mistake not to do that. Filmmaking, a lot of it is about, you know, making the best possible plan you can com- come up with and then be ready to throw it all out if it's not working. Right. So that kind of spontaneity and improvisation is is key. We'll be back with more Barracuda Radio after this short break. Sweeney Todd's Barbershop has some of L.A.'s finest barbers behind its chairs. They take a lot of pride in what they do and won't send you out the door until you and they are 100% satisfied with their work. Their barbers specialize in a variety of men's haircuts, from the longer styles to the shorter clipper cuts. They're also well-versed in the art of the straight razor shave. 
Sweeney Todd's Barbershop is at 4639 Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, or visit them online at SweeneyTodd'sBarbershopLA.com. Sweeney Todd's. It's a crime not to look good. Welcome back to Barracuda Radio. Let's return to our interview with Chris Manley, director and cinematographer on the TV show Mad Men. I would assume that Matthew Weiner had a very strong sense of what he wanted the show to look like and how he wanted it to be shot. Obviously, there was a season that was shot before you came on board. How do you approach that as a cinematographer? Coming into a situation where the show's already going, it already has a very well-defined look and style. Basically, I studied the first season and tried to emulate what they had created the first season and try to absorb that and then try to recreate that. Over my first season or two, I started learning more and more what Matt's preferences were, what he liked, what he didn't like, and I found that they were far closer to my own than I knew. There were a lot of scenes in season one that looked, you know, not just the camera, but also in terms of the lighting. A lot of it looked like studio lighting. It looked kind of beautifully old-fashioned, which I liked. And then I found out that over the time working on the show that Matt preferred a more naturalistic look. I did as well. That The old-fashioned kind of studio style was not my go-to style. It was just something that I was trying to adopt to make it look more like the show. My natural go-to style was to be more naturalistic, particularly with the lighting. And, you know, the benefit of that was that as the show progressed, we were moving through the 1960s. And so that style kind of came about, you know, in the middle of the 60s when film stocks became more sensitive and less light was required. And a lot of cinematographers were using a lot more bounce light instead of direct light. People like Haskell Wexler and Nestor Almendros did a lot of that. And so as I kind of learned that my personal go-to style of lighting matched Matt's preferences anyway, and then we started doing more and more of that as it, as the show progressed, as it got through the 1960s, which kind of mirrored the changes in cinematography that were happening in the 1960s. So that was a kind of fun. That's interesting. So did this the, the photographic style or the lighting of the, the show progress any more to follow the advances of technology in the film industry into the early 70s where it is now? Not really. I mean, I think that basically in filmmaking, when a new tool becomes available, a new exciting tool like the Steadicam, for instance, people kind of use it like crazy. Like the GoPro now. Yes, exactly. Or the movie, which is oh, yeah. people will take that new technology and go hog wild. And so it gets really intensely overused and then people get sick of it and then it kind of pulls back. And then after five or 10 or 15 years, it just becomes another tool in the the toolbox that filmmakers use. And they find kind of a modulated preference for it where, okay, in this particular scene, that is the best tool for the job and we'll, we'll use it for that scene. I think in the 60s, uh, zoom lenses became suddenly really good. Right. They had been experimenting with zoom lenses, they're basically variable focal length lenses, since the beginning of cinema with little success. And then finally in the 1960s, they, some of the manufacturers developed zoom lenses that worked great and filmmakers went nuts and started like zooming in and zooming out and doing crash zooms and it became this thing that everybody loved to use. So, so we resisted that tool. <laughs> <laughs> 
He didn't go for the uh, laugh-in right. whip pans and zooms in and out. No. I mean, and you know, because basically those types of tools kind of break one of the the tenets of our visual design, which is basically the camera should be invisible. The audience shouldn't ever feel the camera. We don't ever want it to call attention to itself. There's been a movement. I don't know when it started. And you could say it was like, you know, one example would be NYPD Blue. They started using a style that had started to become popular in commercials a few years earlier where they're doing whip pans and roving around. And it wasn't handheld. But it was a fake shaky cam. Right. Right, exactly. And it wasn't it wasn't a handheld, it wasn't a documentary look per se, but you always felt the presence of the camera operator and a certain consciousness making a decision to show you this thing or the other thing and kind of whipping around and keeping the camera loose and kind of roving and kind of impatient. And it's a very self-conscious way of filmmaking. You know, it was unheard of in the 1960s. So we kind of, anything that calls attention to itself, we didn't want to do. There are a few moments in the show where we would do very kind of simple or tasteful push-ins or pull-outs, especially the pull-outs at the end of the episodes, you know, through a doorway or through an arch or whatever. We we risk getting slightly self-conscious with the camera when the emotional content of the scene kind of lends itself to that. We never tried to move the camera in a way that would distract from the from the dialogue or the acting, which is interesting enough that you don't have to do any special camera tricks. You've done this run of shooting six seasons of Mad Men and directing four episodes, but essentially at the end of every season, you don't know if that's going to be the last season, correct? It happened often. Yeah, it happened often. Unless they make a deal for multiple seasons, you rarely know. It's always a question mark. For instance, on the networks, their model for a long time had been you know, something like 22 episodes. And so a new show will get ordered and they'll order, you know, they shoot a pilot, they like the pilot, they order 13 episodes, which isn't a full season commitment. And at any time in those first 13 episodes, they could pull the plug and you could be out of a job. Not just you, but 200 plus people could instantly be out of a job. And then at some point in the first 13, the network will decide if they'll continue and then they'll order what they call the back nine which is the nine episodes they shoot in the spring to complete a 22-episode season. Um, it's always kind of a wild card, and uh, there's never any job security. Right. Job-wise and creatively, luckily we're going to see at the end of this season some kind of resolution with something that happens with Don Draper. And I assume that it's all going to get tied together. But people that are fans of the show should know there might have been a point when you only got three seasons of Mad Men and then just it was done. You never knew what happened to Don Draper. You never got to fully hear his backstory. There's always a chance of that. That's true. And But I know that Matthew kind of felt, I don't know at what points he knew or didn't know whether the show was returning, but there were many seasons where the season finale could have been the end. I know that he and the writers thought of each season as kind of its own arc with its own themes, which may be different from the previous season. So yeah, they always wondered about the end and they always tried to make each season end have kind of a resolution that was more or less satisfying in case it didn't continue. It's tricky with a show like this because it's so awarded and so critically acclaimed and yet we didn't have a crazy amount of, of viewership. If a network show gets the kind of viewers that we do, 
they're in danger of being canceled. I mean, that's one of the advantages, I think, of, of being on a cable station. So essentially, you guys were lucky in that you were the biggest fish in the AMC pond. <laughs> Uh, yeah, until, until Breaking Bad and, uh, Walking Dead came along, I guess. True. <laughs> Mad Men, basically, I don't think it's incorrect or dangerous to say that they proved that AMC was viable and could produce quality television, because previous to that, no one thought they could. During one hiatus, you almost didn't come back. Mm-hmm. And then at the last second, you decided you had to do it. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, basically it was another job that I took before Mad Men had a had a start date. Then they got a start date and I realized that I had a conflict and it it, it was bad because I, I committed to this other show and it it looked like I wasn't going to be able to return to Mad Men and I was completely sick about it. I realized at that moment when I almost wasn't able to return how much I loved the show how much I needed the show, how much I loved the people, how much my whole identity as a creative person had become intertwined with this show. And, you know, also a feeling of possession, basically. And the idea that someone else was going to be sleeping with my girlfriend was so horrible to me (laughs) that I left the show that I was on to return to Mad Men. Anyway. That's all the details I can give. (laughs) That's that's the story I wanted to get. So you were shooting the show for quite a few years, and then tell me about how you got the opportunity to finally direct an episode. I didn't know that I was going to ask to direct. Basically... uh, You you didn't know that you were going to ask? Right, right. I knew that, that it was a hard show to direct, just because it's so precise and so... Because Matthew's vision is so strong. And the the problem is when a guest director comes in and wants to put their own stamp on the show, it doesn't always work. So I guess I had done three seasons after yeah, season four. By then I had done three seasons. And I wanted to, like, I love the show. I wanted to stay with the show. I wanted to finish the show. But I was getting creatively slightly stale and i thought well if i want to stay on the show and and keep it interesting and and kind of engage it on a deeper level the my only the only option is to try to direct so i had lunch with matt and he asked me if i could recommend any directors for the for the next upcoming season and i said uh how about me (laughs) (laughs) and he said yes you know, and of course, then I was like, oh, crap, now I have to figure out how to do this. Um, <laughs> and it was strange that I got commissions and fees where Lane Price commits suicide because it was a very, very heavy episode. Yeah. And honestly, the reason they gave it to me was because it basically worked best with the production schedule. It was the episode right before the holiday break. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, as a director, I could edit my episode over the holidays and then continue as the DP starting in January. So that was kind of dumb luck that I got that episode, which was a doozy, but it was kind of like just getting thrown into the deep end and I swam. (laughs) (laughs) I was very lucky in that we have a great cast and a great crew and everyone was kind of behind me and supporting me and wanting me to succeed and the actors were were so generous and so wonderful so i really i really enjoyed it i would think that there is a challenge of trying to direct people that 
are great actors and they know their characters. So this isn't some feature film where everybody's starting from scratch and you're helping them find it. What's that sweet spot that you find there? How did you how did you work within that? You know, I had a, a, an important lesson on my first day with Jared Harris because it was a big episode for him, of course. He asked me a question about the scene and I just, the only thing I could think of was he has done more homework than I have. He has thought more about the scene than I have. <laughs> I'm a terrible director, you know? <laughs> so that, and, that's what went yeah. on in your head, but what, yes. what came out of your mouth? I said, I don't know. What do you think? And so that became my approach was A, humility, and B, collaboration, and respecting that they have put in the time with each of their characters and they have insights into those characters that I'm not going to have. The character is a huge part of them. A huge part of themselves are in this character. So that started basically a, a great collaboration with Jared where I would have ideas, he would have ideas, we would discuss it. Basically, it was kind of like we do a take and then I'd have a note and he would say, that's interesting, but how about this? And then that would give me a different idea or him a different idea where we'd have a brief, maybe 30 second discussion between takes. And then his next performance and the next take would just be amazing, but different than the previous one. So that was thrilling to me because I was, I really came into it with the attitude of who am I to direct the son of Richard Harris? This is laughable, you know, like (laughs) Jared is such a great actor in his own right. And I have never really directed anything before, except for a student film 20 years ago. So I think that just being open about it, being honest about it, being collaborative and listening to the actors and what they had to bring was the best approach I could have taken. And it was really nice. And I got to to know them and got to work with them on a level that I don't as the cinematographer. As a cinematographer, your conversations with the actors are very brief and technical and often superficial. Like, hi, John, good morning. How are you? Listen, when you come through that door, would you mind leaning on your right for me? Sure. Thanks. Nuts and bolts. That's it. Yeah. There's very little time for socializing. There's very little time for getting to know who they are on a deeper level. And I found how much I enjoyed it and how interesting actors can be personally. So that was exciting. Let's talk a little bit about that episode. The episode was called Commissions and Fees, Mm -hmm. and it was season five, episode 12. And it's the one where, spoiler alert, if you haven't gotten to season five yet, Lane commit suicide and there was a great joke in there for car guys where lane tries to kill himself with his new jaguar and can't <laughs> because, because it, won't, it start. won't start and i fell out of my chair laughing when i saw that i thought that was brilliant tell me about anything you can remember of, of shooting that episode interesting things that came up on the set or the the challenges of shooting such a, a heavy scene it was heavy. It was it was very it was sad a lot of the time for the actors because they had been working with Jared for a few years and now his character is going away and you know it happens a lot on our show when a character leaves the show it's a big episode for that character and not just with larger characters but smaller characters like Don's secretary who before Megan I forget her name who he slept with and then she threw that cigarette dispenser at him and stormed out in tears and mm-hmm. it's like she got the best episode she would ever have 
but it's the one, sorry, it's the one you're leaving now, right. you know? Right, so everybody's <laughs> so, leaving dramatically or dying or getting yes, fired. Yeah, because Jared in, you know, his episode where his character commits suicide, where Lane commits suicide, had some of the most dramatic scenes that he had had yet on the show. I got to say, I got so much credit for that scene where the Jaguar won't start, where he tries to kill him, asphyxiate himself with the Jaguar and it won't start. And that was in the writing completely and matt was setting up that joke for a whole season i mean there was there was a lot of cracks about jaguars and about how they don't start and how they're british but they don't they have electrical problems in the rain and you know all kinds of right they come with the toolbox in the trunk because you're going to be fixing it all the time Yeah. yeah there was a lot of jaguar jokes leading up to that moment so the payoff was fantastic and I was just lucky to get to direct that payoff. I actually met the guy that owns the Jaguar that was used oh. as Lane's car at a car show. And he Are was you kidding. He was a little beefed that that was how his car was portrayed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I remember someone telling me that he was one of the engineers that, that helped build the International Space Station. That's which I thought was a great little piece of trivia, but also a car buff, you know, <laughs> who owns a beautiful classic Jaguar. Anyway, I'm sure it starts for him. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that was his point. <laughs> yeah. That would never happen in real life. <laughs> when I read the script for that episode, I was so blown away, slightly intimidated, and I thought, okay, this script is so good, all I have to do is not screw it up, and it will be a great episode. I think I succeeded in not screwing it up. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't screw it up at all, I'll tell you that. You didn't screw it up at all. One of the other episodes that you directed was The Runaways, which was season seven, episode five. And this was a good episode, too. This is the one where Lou is ridiculed about his cartoons mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Ginsburg goes nuts. Right. And I won't say what happens with Ginsburg, but if you've seen it, you know, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen it, wait till you see it. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about this episode for two reasons. The first is that season seven was the first season that introduced... Alan Havy's character, Lou. And I thought he was fantastic. I thought he was one of the most interesting characters on the show. And I actually talked to him when he was doing press for the show. And he said that he was getting so much hate mail and tweets because Lou was so hard on Don. Mm-hmm. And he had, he had a good sense of humor about it. But he said, really, you're mad at me because I'm holding the alcoholic guy that can't that keeps screwing everybody over and messing things up because I'm holding him accountable at work. I'm the bad guy, which is a funny line. But the character of Lou, I thought, was such an interesting person to put into Mad Men, where all of these people are misbehaving and there's all this codependency and alcoholism. And he comes in and is, for some reason, the sergeant and he's holding people accountable. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what you think about the Lou character. I like the Lou character because he is such a contrast to Don. I loved working with Alan and he, I didn't know him. And someone said he, oh, he's a, he was a stand-up comic and uh, found some old videos of him on YouTube. And I was just amazed. He had some hilarious bits. I was surprised when I first saw him. I said, this guy looks, this guy looks like Alan Havy. <laughs> because I knew him as a comic, okay. but I hadn't seen him in a while. And I had no idea that he could act that well. And he's, yeah. a, he's an amazing actor. He could yeah. not be any less of the Lou character in life. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I had no idea what his background was, except that he was a stand-up comic. And it was like, oh boy, you know, sometimes 
you know, stand-ups try to become actors and it doesn't work so well, you know, and, um, but he was fantastic. And then we had this scene where Ginsburg sees Lou and um, Cutler talking in the computer room, but he can't hear what they're saying. And we we're trying to evoke a scene from 2001 uh, where Hal is watching the two astronauts speaking in the pod because that actually came out right around that time, I think in 1968. So we kind of leaned on that a little bit, which was fun to try to to recall that scene from 2001. So, you know, we had a long lens shooting through the computer room and they're talking and we go to do, we're setting up the scene and I realize there's nothing in the script. We have no idea what they're talking about. There's nothing to tell you what yeah. to tell the actors to say. I didn't know what to tell them to say. I go into the room with them and they're like, so should we just uh, make something up or what do you want? I'm like, gosh, I don't know. I don't, what, what would you guys be talking about? He's like, well, well, it doesn't really matter, right? I'm like, no, it doesn't. And so then Harry Hamlin had the idea of doing Richard III. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, it was that famous speech. Um, uh, how does it start? Oh, the winner, the winner uh, yes, of our discontent. The winner. Now is the winner of our discontent. And so <laughs> Harry starts. He does one line. Alan does another line. Harry does a line. Alan does a line. And they went on like this endlessly. So Alan knew it. Alan well. knew it cold. Harry knew it cold. <laughs> I was so impressed. I'm like, look at that. The stand-up comic knows Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> So that was a load off my mind. I didn't have to give them anything to do. And it looked like it's kind of like an old, you know, acting exercises where you're kind of speaking gibberish or speaking something that is unrelated to the emotion. And yet you're trying to convey a certain emotion, even though the words don't reflect that at all. So that's kind of what they were doing was, was this really intense, important secret conversation, but it was all Richard III. <laughs> so now if you go back to that episode, you can lip read and try to figure out maybe what they're saying. Maybe maybe I'll get in trouble for saying that, but <laughs> no, that's a good little trivia. That's you're, you're yeah. not giving away the, yeah. the end of the last uh, episode or anything. Right, right. It's not really a spoiler. We'll be back with more Barracuda Radio after this. Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And folks, I love being a comic and an actor and a writer, but there's nothing I love better than this show, The Larry Miller Show, the best podcast in history. Come join us and tell a friend where better podcasts are found or on LarryMillerPodcast.com. You're listening to Barracuda Radio. Let's return to our interview with Chris Manley, director and cinematographer on Mad Men. I want to ask you about a couple of specific characters. What do you make of Ken Cosgrove? He appears to be the only person on the show that isn't an SOB. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this before, that the importance of having a Pete on the show. Mm -hmm. Pete's a terrible person, and as a viewer, you wish that he would get fired. But creatively, dramatically... He's the best thing that ever happened because right, he right. fires up everything. We were likening him, likening him to the the servant Thomas on Downton Abbey. 
Aha. Uh-huh. That you exactly. need to kind of have this yeah. little jerk guy. I can there. see that. You got to have that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think is going on with Ken Cosgrove? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because Ken and Pete kind of came up together and then they got made co heads of accounts at some point. So, their career trajectory has been similar and yet they're so different. You know, I think Ken was originally conceived as kind of a all American milk toast, which without much you know, ambition or didn't have that kind of ruthlessness that Pete Campbell did and maybe didn't really wasn't as ambitious and had other creative pursuits outside of advertising. The first episode I directed was a scene. Actually, it was the first day, the first scene of the first day that I ever directed was a scene in a lounge where Ken meets with Roger and basically says he's going to help the agency get Dow through his father-in-law and for the first time you see ken be completely mercenary and say these are my demands this is what i'm going to do for you but here's what you're going to do for me pete campbell is not included in this he's not in the meetings blah 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 i can't remember exactly the dialogue but it was like wow like that was the first time where you saw kenny act in a slightly malicious manner and basically in kind of a mercenary fashion, which was, and it was so exciting for me because I was directing Aaron Staten, who had been keeping the character consistent throughout. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, I thought we got to see Ken do something outside of his expected character. And Aaron loved doing the scene and I loved doing it with him. And it was, it was really cool. Although I did feel a little bit that Ken did that because his hand was forced by what a jerk Pete was all the mm-hmm. time. I think if Pete hadn't always been such a jerk, he might not have gone to that extreme. But Yeah, it's like the first time he, he lets it be known that Pete does piss him off, that he does have a problem with Pete. Because generally, he was just kind of, in the past, had let it roll off, and he didn't really seem bothered by anything. Who is, not your favorite character, but who is the character that you find most compelling on the show? Oh, boy. <laughs> it's so hard it varies so much it changes i love all of their stories and i love how they've evolved and grown over the years i loved like watching joan hit that glass ceiling i loved watching her break through the glass ceiling i loved watching peggy getting shit on over and over and over and never giving up She's so tenaciously ambitious. And I always thought it was interesting when Joan would lash out at Peggy. Yeah. Because you would think that there would be some kind of kinship between the two of them that they could relate to having the same struggles. But two or three times during the show, Joan's Joan's really brushed her back. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, when you think about feminism and women in the workplace and how you would naturally assume that they would try to help each other. But often it's not it doesn't happen that way. They're both strong women in different ways. So you can see the the conflicts between them as well. I think Peggy is, they're all fascinating. I mean, it's like finding out what makes them tick is half the fun. Who is the character that you think has changed the most since the beginning of the series? Wow. You know, I, I don't know. I think one of the things that's fun about the series is that it kind of occasionally points out that people don't fundamentally change 
they're going to make the same mistakes over and over again. We've certainly seen Don Draper do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Peggy has changed the most, I think, because at the beginning of the show, she's the ingenue, and then she just grows and grows and grows and discovers her power. One of the advantages of doing a television series instead of a movie for creators is that they can do longer story arcs and watch characters change more slowly. There isn't this pressure to have them have some kind of significant change, you know, in 90 minutes. And it allows them to make a lot of mistakes. Robert Morse, who plays Burt Cooper, Mm -hmm. is he as awesome as he seems like he is in life? Yeah. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. I mean, he's he's one of those people who's had a lot of ups and downs in their career and comes to work every day just so happy to be there loves the work and the people he works with and is just a joy and a pleasure to have on set i think that comes with age i think that comes with experience not on our show but i know that on a lot of shows especially you know younger actors when they have a lot of success radical success early on there's a risk that they take it for granted and don't understand how fortunate they are whereas someone who's had a long career can see the ups and downs and and therefore just appreciates it more and is i think that i think that's part of becoming a veteran how long ago did you rap uh we finished shooting the first week in july last year so it's almost been a year since you stopped essentially working on mad men yes. i mean you had some post work to do but. yeah i did some color timing and i think i did the final color timing on the on the last episode in september is it strange for you to see the end of mad men being such a pop culture phenomenon when your work on it ended six nine months ago yeah it is it is strange but you know we've been watching them my wife and i have been watching them faithfully every sunday night like regular viewers you know the final seven episodes we did so long ago that i forget what they are i forget what's in them i mean i know the the end of the story so to speak but i'm experiencing it more like a viewer which is really fun it's hard to let go i mean i think it our producers kind of created an environment there where they you know over the years they basically culled the bad apples from the crew and you know and the cast was always wonderful so the last few years it was totally a family feeling and when it ended it felt like it's like i have my family life at home and i had my family life at work which was predominantly mad men and uh i lost one of them which is sad and i talked to everybody and we'll see each other again but it's never the same it's like the last day of summer camp exactly exactly so i miss it but i'm on a you know i've started a new show masters of sex that also has a family feeling where everyone is really wonderful and nice and gets along and it's a great working atmosphere and i was like okay so i have a new family now (laughs) i've learned to love again yes (laughs) so tell me a little bit about masters of sex uh masters of sex is is about masters and johnson the famous sex researchers from um, that started the research in the 1950s and then released their book in the 1960s it covers a lot of the same era that mad men did which is partly why i was hired to do the show Mm. (laughs) but you know the writing is fantastic it's slightly different format because it's on showtime and there's no commercials so each episode is a little longer Mm -hmm. What challenges does that present for you? Well, it's it's basically a similar shooting schedule to Mad Men, but we have to produce eight more minutes of material 
which means we have to work at a faster pace, which I can do. I'm adjusting to. Just to give people a sense of how tedious filmmaking is, <laughs> when you shoot a day's worth of shooting, say a 10 or 12 hour day, mm -hmm. 10-hour day? When does that happen? <laughs> okay. A 12 or 14-hour day. What does that translate to roughly in minutes on screen? Hmm. I suppose six or seven minutes of screen time. So for every six or seven minutes, that took a day of work from yes. an army full of people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A crew of you know 150 plus plus there's all those support people and all the post facilities and equipment facilities and you know, and then all the people in the office, all the people at the studio, all the people in editorial and sound mixing and et cetera. It's a, it is an army of people to create each show. Yeah, and it takes, a, it takes a lot of time. But the advantage for the writers is that they don't have to write to the commercial breaks, which is a challenge on shows that have commercials. The scripts are structured that way. It's like teaser and then act one through five. And each act has to kind of live on its own and be compelling enough in the final scene to get the viewers to come back after the commercial. So not having commercials is a huge creative advantage. And I think, you know, I don't think that on Mad Men we kind of, you know, I don't want to speak for the writers, but they didn't write for the commercial breaks. I think that they kind of decided after the show was edited where the best place for the commercial breaks were. Uh, so they didn't write in a traditional kind of major network way. You know, in Masters of Sex with no commercials, the program actually, in some ways you can tell more story because you have more time. So I've been reviewing them all and a lot of them feels, to some extent Mad Men did as well, but it feels like you're watching a, a small movie each week, which is the goal, is basically to elevate the material enough that each one is compelling on its own and can stand alone. And does it look like you're going to be directing any episodes of Masters of Sex? Uh, yes, I am. Excellent. I, I, so we'll we'll see we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I'm very excited to do it. I think it's a great show. And uh, what did you say uh, about your first episode of Mad Men? You just needed to not screw it up. Yes, that's all you have to do again. That's right. That's right. I just need to. Heaven but, forbid you actually do a good job. Yes, it could happen. It could happen. Dare to dream. It could happen. But the actors are fantastic. You know, I've shot two episodes of of Masters of Sex now, and I, I can see it right away. It's like, they're so good and they're so prepared. And it gave me that, the same feeling I had on Mad Men. Watching John Hamm play against Elizabeth Moss, I feel similarly watching Michael Sheen play against Lizzie Kaplan. They're just so good, so professional, and work so well together. What are some TV shows that you like personally? <laughs> what do you watch? Well, the problem with working in television is you don't have time to watch television. You can't do both. You can't be a viewer and work because the hours are so all-consuming. But when I'm not working, I do look at a lot of other shows, a lot of other pilots. I'm always looking for what what show I think would be worth the time. And I guess in the past year, we we loved Fargo. Fargo, I thought, was the worst idea for a TV series ever. I thought, really, you're going to take that movie, which I love, right. Fargo, and make that into a TV series? That is a horrible idea. And then I watched it, and I was just blown away. I mean, they totally captured the mood and the tone of the movie, and the actors are wonderful. It's not the same story. It's a different story, but it has the same mood and the same tone, and they pull you along for 10 episodes in the most wonderful way. And I just love that 
to death. And then the other one I got into was Peaky Blinders, which is a BBC series starring uh, Cillian Murphy, which is just fantastic. Oh, I don't know that. What's that about? It's about a crime boss in post-World War One in, I think it's in Birmingham, England. And it's wonderful and visually fantastic. I just love that show. And then on the comedy side, I flipped for Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah, that's a great show. Was sheer genius <laughs> i almost peed my pants several times yeah, that's really brilliant. <laughs> yeah that's what i've been watching I, I hope to discover more shows that i like when i wrap up masters of sex <laughs> when you meet people say at a dinner party or at some social function or and you talk to them and you start talking about what you do for a living and you say that you work on madman that you're the cinematographer and you've directed some episodes is there a frequently asked question that people ask you about what it's like to work on the show or something about the show? I don't know. It varies. The fans of the show have very specific questions. They won't ask general questions about the show, but they'll ask about a specific scene or a specific character or something you know that was personal to them. Basically, there's no recurring question that I get. But if you talk to Matt Weiner about it, he'll he'll tell you that when he started the show and started in the early years of the show, when people found out that he created it, they would basically tell them about their own experience. They would tell them about how, you know, their mother or their father worked in an ad agency and this happened or that happened or something in your show reminded me of something that happened to me and and this happened. So it was like this amazing icebreaker for him where people would want to talk about their life experience. So it was kind of like by creating this story, he opened a floodgate of more stories, like more stories came to him. Like everybody wanted to tell him his story after they knew what a great storyteller he was, which is kind of interesting because I'm sure he used a lot of that material. But, <laughs> but it's kind of a fascinating idea that, that it compelled people to tell him interesting stories about their own lives. And especially the people who lived through that era kind of see things that are personal to them in the show. I'll give you an example. My mother flipped out when she saw the Bye Bye Birdie episode. And she said, did you give Matt that idea? I said, no, why? She said, don't you remember? I said, what? She said, when she was in high school, she had a guy who lived next door to her who wanted to be a filmmaker. And he filmed her doing Bye Bye Birdie as Anne Margaret. What? And this film exists. You know, she got it transferred. I have the DVD. You know, really? I actually took it to work. I took it to the Mad Men set and put it in the player. <laughs> and everyone was blown away. They're like, what is this? They're like, that's Manly's mother. You know, she was doing that that Bye Bye Birdie opening song the, the same way in our show. We They used it for a commercial. That is so crazy. I know. What, <laughs> what are the odds of that happening? I don't know. And there are a lot of those. Everybody sees something in some, either in Betty or in Don that reminds them of one of their parents or something that happened to them. Betty locking Sally in the closet, you know, things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Did did that ever happen to you? No. (laughs) (laughs) But I know other people it's happened to. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the show, because of the nature of the period and because the period isn't so far back that a lot of people who are alive experience that period. I think it's like the situations, 
that come up. It's the props that come up. It's the food. It's the wardrobe. A lot of those things just spark memories for people. We, we would see it anytime we walk into a new set. You know, you just look around and look at the dressing and look at the ashtrays and the games and the crew people are like, oh, I had this. Oh, my God. Right. You might have forgotten you know, for like, 30 yes. years that you had that game. And all <laughs> exactly. of a sudden you see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it was, it was also strange because they got a lot of old TV guides and you'd see the cover of like, what was the cover story? What was the cover show for TV Guide in February 1967? Kind of, it's kind of amazing. My mother, the car. I thought it was going to be big. <laughs> yep. That's amazing. Chris Manley, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. The series finale of Mad Men airs May 17th on AMC. Chris Manley is now directing and shooting for Masters of Sex, which begins airing new episodes July 12th on Showtime. If you like our show, you can support us by clicking through the Amazon banner at barracudaradio.com. You can also pay what you like for an episode with PayPal, also through our site. We're Barracuda Radio on Facebook and Twitter. If you like the show, tell a friend. The Barracuda theme song at the top of the show is by Flag of Democracy from their album, Home Lobotomy Kid. Dialogue editing on this episode was by Seven Morris. You can find me on social media at Colonel Jeff Fox. And until next time, thanks for listening.